And so, the scoffer will say, and this will lead us into our text for this morning, the scoffer will say in verse 4, Where is the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So the scoffers, they claim that Jesus is not returning. He is not coming back. Where is he? You say he has ascended into heaven, that he will return. When? It sure looks like. Human history is just a wound and ticking watch. It sure looks like that things are just running on autopilot with no outside interference from your supposed God and Savior. It sure appears that history is just an endless roundabout, that there are no meaningful exits, and you are crazy to believe that the God of the Bible is interested or engaged with your life at all. So what does Peter say to that? How does Peter address the scoffer and encourage the believer? Well, Peter reminds us, he reminds us that the scoffer conveniently forgets. The the scoffer conveniently ignores the testimony of God himself in his recorded and revealed word. Because God testifies about himself that he is not absent. He has not been absent and he will not continue to be absent. God was active in creation when he spoke the universe into existence. God was active in judgment when he brought about a global flood upon the earth. God was and is active in salvation, in sending His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Savior that we all need. God is active in giving us the promises of His Spirit and the promises of His soon return. As as Matt said last week, and I, I loved this, Matt said, God's Word is the highest available authority to speak to our past, present, and future. That is so good. And as Peter writes in verse 5, the scoffer, the mocker, they willingly forget this. In fact, Peter says they deliberately overlook this. They, They purposefully overlook these facts. The scoffer and the mocker, they gladly throw out the testimony of God. And then they make fun of you, the believer, for listening to the voice of God. For listening to the wisdom and the truth of of God. And yet... That's not where Peter stops. Peter doesn't stop there in his teaching and in his arguments regarding the mocker. No, he continues. He continues for the benefit of you and me. He, he, he continues for the benefit of the believer, for the encouragement of God's people to encourage yet more worship and more faith and more trust in God. Peter continues writing and he tackles the complaint of the mocker. He addresses the foolishness of the scoffer. He takes their crooked question and their crooked line of reasoning and he sets it straight. He tells it like it really is and he brings all of us back to a right understanding of at least three things. God's timeless transcendence. Two, God's purposeful patience. And number three, God's determined decree. Where is God? Why does he look like he's absent? 
What is taking Jesus so long to return? I mean, I've been alive now for 43 years. I ain't seen him. Maybe he's, maybe he's not coming back. Maybe life is just an endless treadmill. Maybe human history is just a cruel cul-de-sac where we drive around looking for somewhere to park. No. No. You need to understand. I need to understand what Peter explains here. The timeless transcendence of God, the purposeful patience of God, and the determined decree of God. So with that in mind... Look again at verse 8. Begins with the word, but. But, meaning in contrast to the scoffer. In contrast to the mocker. Here's what you need to know, brothers and sisters. Peter writes, do not overlook this one fact, beloved. Again, he's writing to the beloved, to those whom he loves in Christ. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. Please note it on your outline. Here we see timeless transcendence. That is, don't think that God shares your perspective on time. He doesn't. And again, notice how Peter begins this section. He begins it with those words, but do not overlook this one fact. Meaning, there are lots of other facts that you could perhaps forget Fine, don't forget this one. There are many things about theology that you may be tempted to overlook from time to time, but do not overlook this one fact. There is something here about God you need to know. You need to remember. You need to have continually on your radar and in your horizon. So what is it? What is so important that Peter begins verse 8 with this kind of warning and emphasis? Simply this, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. You say, okay, great. What does that mean? How does that actually help us? How does this encourage us in any meaningful kind of way? How does this help answer the mocker and the scoffer who rejects the wisdom of God? I mean, if we're being honest, this is not a phrase that we are used to hearing. This is not a phrase that we are used to sharing or to saying to one another. You know, when you write a note or a card or an email or a text message, message to to a friend that you're trying to encourage, you probably don't think to say this at the end of your letter. You don't say, oh, and by the way, dear beloved friend, don't forget that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. Sincerely, your bestie forever. You don't do that. And when you sign someone's yearbook, do kids, do kids still do that? Is that a, still a thing, yearbooks? Remember that? You, last day of school, or all the yearbooks come out, sign in everybody's yearbook, dear so-and-so, have a great summer, stay cool, and never forget that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. We don't do that. We don't talk that way. Parents, when you send your children off to summer camp, and they are finally packed, and they are heading out the door. You will not call after them, and don't forget to wear your sunscreen, and whatever you don't forget, that with the Lord, a thousand years is as one day, and one day is as a thousand years. We don't, we don't do this. We don't talk this way. 
So why does Peter care? What's the point? What is Peter trying to bring to our attention? I like how Paul Gardner summarizes this point in his commentary so simply. He writes, the point is simple. We should not simply look at time from our point of view. We need to remember just who this eternal God is before we jump to conclusions about describing the delay as a long time. He's right. He's absolutely right. Note this on your outline. God views time from a perspective that is very different from ours. And this is what Peter wants us to remember. Peter is calling us to remember who God is. Who God is in his eternal nature and glory. Peter is reminding us that God is not bound by time as we are. God has never been frustrated by a lack of time like we so often are. God has never found himself racing against the clock, just wishing that he had five more minutes to to finish a project or just a few more hours to think something through. God has never experienced any of this. No, Peter is telling us God can get done in one day what would take us a thousand years to accomplish. God can do the work of a thousand years in one day. And to God, a thousand years does not seem like a very long time. God has never, God has never had difficulty connecting the dots throughout human history, tracing his glorious plan of salvation to that moment when he would send the Lord Jesus Christ to be the Savior that we all need. God has never had difficulty working out his sovereign will. No matter how many thousands of years go by, a thousand years is like a day to him. Warren Wearsby explains it this way in his commentary, saying, God is eternal, without beginning or ending, and he dwells in eternity. He dwells in eternity. Eternity, I love this, is not just extended time. Rather, it is existence above and apart from time. He's right. And in the book of Isaiah, God speaking through the prophet, says this about himself in Isaiah 57. For thus says the one. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity. That's who God is. He is the one who, he inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. God says this, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit and to revive the heart of the contrite. God is so glorious. He is so holy. He transcends time and space. And God is so kind. God is so gracious that he makes his home with. He comes to those who are humble and lowly before him. So in light of this, are you starting to get Peter's point? Do you see the absurdity of criticizing God? Do you see the absurdity of mocking God 
for his use of time when he is the one who inhabits eternity. Now, this is a poor analogy, but it would be like me walking into an operating room while while brain surgery was happening. Now, just as a side note, if you're ever having brain surgery and I show up in the operating room, buckle up. It's going to be a very short and life-ending surgery for you, okay? So, but imagine the I know Obviously, nothing about brain surgery. Imagine the absurdity of me walking into an operating room while brain surgery is taking place and me walking up to the brain surgeon saying, you're not doing it right. You're taking too long. It should be done by now. But I'm here now. And I'm here to make some helpful suggestions to you about how you can move this thing along and fix this guy's brain. The surgeon would look at me and say, Who are you? How, who are you? I know, how dare I walk in with brazen arrogance and suggest that I can teach the brain surgeon something about brain surgery? That's exactly the point. Exactly the point. We are the ones who dare to look at God and say, you're not doing it right. You're not doing it right. You're too slow. You're lethargic. Things are not happening like they should be. Listen, God, I've been alive for 43 years. I've seen some things. I've seen some things in my 43 years. You're not doing it right. You're too slow. Peter's, please stop talking. You're embarrassing yourself. Exactly. Exactly. Do you see the absurdity, brothers and sisters, when we come to God and we say, you're slow. You're not doing it right. How much better would it be? How much better would it be to trust the wisdom of God who inhabits eternity? How much better would it be to believe uh, in the eternal good sovereignty of God who has declared Himself to be so to us? How good would it be to trust the One who not only sees the end from the beginning, but who declares the end from the beginning? How much better would it be to say, how much better would it be to say to God, Something like what we read in Psalm 90, where the psalmist says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, wherever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man, for a thousand years. Interesting. Doesn't the psalmist sound a lot like Peter here? I should say, doesn't Peter sound a lot like the psalmist here? For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past or as a watch in the night. So yes, God does not share your perspective on time. His is far superior. This is who God really is. And Peter calls us to both remember and to rest in this one who is so good and gracious and glorious. Next, look at verse 9. Peter writes, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. 
not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Please note it on your outline. Here we see number two, God's purposeful patience. And that is to say, you, not other people. We are not talking about other people. Well, we will talk about other people, not in a gossipy way, in a very good God-glorifying way, but you, we're talking about you here, you, not other people, should rejoice in the patience of God. Do you? You should. You should. And by the time we're done with this verse in a few moments, I hope that you will. And I hope that you do. You should rejoice in the patience of God. Now, before we dig in and discuss what this verse does mean, we need to just quickly observe what it does not mean. What this verse does not mean. Because some have worked very hard to twist this verse into teaching universalism. Universalism. It's the idea that everyone is eventually saved no matter what. They say, see, this verse talks about the desires of God and the the will of God. And God always accomplishes his good pleasure, does he not? And this verse says that God is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so everyone will. Everyone will eventually repent, either in this life or the next. And so they will be saved and no one will perish. No one will ever face wrath or destruction before God. No. No, Peter is not preaching or teaching universalism here. This is so clear and obvious. This is so clear and obvious that this is not what Peter believes. This is not what Peter is teaching in this very same letter. If you remember just a few weeks back, we we talked about how Peter described the coming death and destruction of false teachers, of those who rebel against the truth, those who refuse to love and to honor the Lord Jesus Christ and his word. Just a few weeks ago, we were in uh, chapter 2, verse 3, where Peter said that these false teachers... Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Then, in chapter 2, verse 9, Peter wrote that God knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. The day of judgment. It is coming. It is coming. Condemnation, destruction, And judgment for those who hate Christ, for those who reject the gospel. So having just said that, Peter is not now here in chapter three, all of a sudden preaching some kind of warm, squishy universalism that minimizes our need to repent and to trust in Jesus Christ. He's not doing that. So what is he doing? What is verse nine all about? Please note this on your outline. Verse 9 explains to us the very good, gracious, and personal nature of God's patience. Now, it's true, and Peter acknowledges this at the beginning of verse 9. It is true that some people, some people look at the patience of God and they mistake it for something. They mistake it for slowness. Now, I know no one would do that at Harbor Shores Church. No, nobody at Harbor Shores, maybe at I-Town, people do that. Where's Rachel? I'm just kidding. Just kidding. I, that was mean. That was so uncalled for. Boo. I know. That's fine. It's just a joke. Friendly joke. Shouldn't have said that, though. Okay. 
Sometimes. I'm just kidding. Do you know what the funny joke is? You know why it's funny? Because we all do that from time to time, don't we? All of us, at some point in our lives, we look at the patience of God and we say, what gives? Like, Lord, why not now? I've been praying for this for how long? Why not now? Why not answer my prayer now? Why are you taking so long? We even see this in Scripture. Even in the book of Revelation, we see martyred saints before the throne of God crying out what? How long, O Lord? And so there is a sense in which we do long for God to fulfill His plan. But be careful, be careful. Do not mistake the patience of God for slowness. Because there are times when we think, God, you seem so slow. I have so many problems and issues in my life that would be solved if Jesus would just return right now. So please, can we please get this thing going? I like what pastor and author John MacArthur writes about the slowness of God in his commentary. He writes this, slow. It's that Greek word, braduno, means delayed or late, implying the idea of loitering. None of that applies to God, he writes. His seeming slowness is not due to lack of ability, forgetfulness, or apathy. In fulfilling his promise, I love this, God is working everything precisely according to his perfect plan and schedule. And then, and then he connects it, I love this, he connects the patience of God to the first coming of Christ when he was born in Bethlehem. He writes, that same principle applied to Christ's first coming. And then he quotes Galatians 4, 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And listen, brothers and sisters, in the fullness of time, at exactly the right moment, Jesus will come again. He will come again. He is not slow. God is not apathetic. God is not loitering around up in heaven as if he has nothing to do, as if he is distracted and inattentive to the cries of his children. He is, says Peter, he is patient. He is patient. He is macro through meo. He is long-suffering. He is long-suffering. God is giving more time for sinners to repent. As, As Peter writes here, he's giving more time for sinners to quote, reach repentance. That is to say, he is giving more time for sinners to come to their senses, to change their mind, to think rightly about themselves and their sin and the holiness of God and the sufficiency of Christ and the necessity of faith, personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. God is giving yet more time for people to hear the good news and to respond to the gospel. God is giving more time for His children to be gathered to Him for the bride of Christ, the bride for which Jesus laid down His life. He is giving more time for that bride to be gathered and to be brought together into the kingdom of God. This verse also reminds us of God's compassionate heart, does it not? We see this compassion of God so vividly expressed in the book of Ezekiel, where God says through the prophet, 
in verses 23 and then again in verse 32, God says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God, so turn and live. That is repentance. That is repentance. So turn and live. Stop going the direction you're going. Turn and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are here today and you have never trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the message for you. This is the message for you. Turn and live. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Make this your own. Latch on to Christ for who He is, for what He has accomplished in His atoning work. Stop thinking that you can save yourself. Stop thinking that by your own supposed goodness and righteousness and abilities that you can make yourself right with God. You need the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn and live. You can become a new creation in Christ today. You can. You can become a new creation in Christ today. Repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you're here today and you've never done that, we would love to talk with you. We would love to pray with you. We'd love to encourage you in this way. But if you are here today and you are already a follower of Christ, praise God. That is glorious. That is wonderful. You say, well, what should this verse do for me? Well, I have a couple ideas. Let me give you at least one right now and then one in just a moment. First of all, let this verse remind us, brothers and sisters, of our need to proclaim and our need to pray. Our need to proclaim the good news of Christ. Our need to pray for the lost. There is someone you know who is not yet a follower of Christ, right? There is, there is someone in your sphere of life and work and school and social activities. You know someone who does not yet know the life, the joy, the peace that is found in Christ. You, you must be praying for them. You must be praying for them. You must be willing to have that Honest, if not at times, awkward conversation about their need for Jesus Christ. Love them enough to speak and to pray for their salvation. Remember that when the Apostle Paul was, was, was discussing and talking about the rightness of our prayers on behalf of people for their salvation. When Paul was discussing the rightness of that kind of praying, he said this in 1 Timothy 2.3 said, this is good. <laughs> Amen. This is good. It is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So pray and pray and pray some more and proclaim the truth about who Jesus really is, how he is kind and gracious, how he gladly saves all who come to him. Now, Before we leave verse 9, there's one more curious detail that we need to talk about here. 
It's really surprising when you think about it. You probably noticed, you were probably shocked earlier when Joe Futrell was reading the text and you thought, I can't believe that he used that word. I can't wait for Chris to talk about this. Well, I'm there now. Okay, we are here now. Look again at verse 9 and you'll, you'll notice it right away. It says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. You? Don't you mean them? Don't you mean God is patient toward them? You mean you? I'm already a believer. God's not patient towards me. I'm already saved. Don't you mean, Peter, that God is patient toward, towards them? What's going on here? Well, what Peter is doing here is he is reminding us of how every believer is intimately connected to the patience of God. I, I don't know every detail of your testimony. I don't. But I do know one detail that is in your testimony. The patience of God. If you are saved, if you are in Christ, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is in part due to the patience of God. That he was patient towards you. And I might add, God continues to be patient towards you. Does he not? As he refines us and disciplines us and grows us. I love how Jim Samra uh, just so briefly writes about this in his commentary. He says that this is a reminder. <laughs> it's a reminder that God's patience is the reason why those who are believers have been saved. And this same patience will be the reason why others will come in as well. He's right. God is still doing this today. God is still saving and drawing sinners to himself. And so, instead of being frustrated and angry that God is not acting according to our timetable, instead of saying that God is slow, that God is indifferent, that God is inattentive, instead of thinking that we know better than God as to when Jesus should return, perhaps we should say this, God, thank you for your patience towards me. Because without your patience, I would be dead in my trespasses and sins. God, thank you that today is a day of grace. God, thank you that today is an opportunity for me to grow, for me to continue to become more like Jesus. Thank you that today is a day to share His love with someone else. Someone else who really needs to know just how great and glorious you, you really are. I, it is not an accident that we're discussing this on the same day that Rachel Reams is here from, from Josiah White. Could it be that God would seek to use you in connection with this ministry or with a similar ministry to manifest His grace and His glory and His goodness in us and through us? But, but the point is this, however God works in us and through us, let us never speak ill of the patience of God. Let us never minimize or, or, or distract from God's goodness in His patience. It's why we are saved. It's why we are brought into the kingdom of God. May we never be guilty of treating God's patience with contempt. It is part of our salvation testimony. So yes, today is a day of patience. Today is a day of mercy and grace. And verse 10 is also true. Verse 10 is also true. Look again at verse 10. 
Peter writes, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, meaning it will be loud, it will be pronounced, it will be dramatic, you will not miss it, you will not wonder, was that it? Was that when the heavens passed? Oh, if, if you're wondering that, that's not it. Okay, it will pass away with a, with a roar. It will be demonstrable. It will be noticeable. And Peter writes, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So note this on your outline. Here we see God's determined decree. That is the day of judgment the day of transformation, the day of ultimate revelation will come. Will come. Here, Peter is looking forward to that final time, to that day of judgment, when creation itself is undone, when creation itself trembles before God and it dissolves and melts, and this will happen right before God then transforms creation and He recreates it into a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And this is precisely where Peter goes just a few verses from now. This is the very point that Peter makes just a couple verses later later in verse 13 where he writes but according to his promise we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells we are we're longing for that we are waiting for that but as it relates to this the day of the lord it is helpful for us to turn to the prophet isaiah the prophet isaiah along with many of the prophets wrote about this day They discussed this day. They described it in graphic and even painful details. We read this in Isaiah 13, 6. God speaking through the prophet says, Wail, wail, for the day of the Lord is near as destruction from the Almighty. It will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed, pangs and Agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another. Their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. Now, after reading that, do you still think God is lazy? Do you still think God is apathetic and indifferent and clueless as to what He's doing and how He's working out His sovereign will? God knows. He is wise. He is purposeful in His timing. Please note this on your outline. The day of the Lord will come, says Peter, quote, like a thief, like a thief, meaning so many will be oblivious and unprepared. That. So many will be unprepared. So many will be clueless as to what this is, this is all about. This is why Peter describes it as coming like a thief. A thief comes suddenly. He does not text you what time he's going to drop by. A visit from a thief, it will always catch you by surprise unless you are prepared, unless you are watchful. 
And it's interesting that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul writes something very similar to this. And I, I love Paul's description of it here in Thessalonians because he adds a word of encouragement to the believer about this day. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 saying, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, while people are saying, there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief, for you are all children of light, children of the day. Brothers and sisters, as believers, that's, that's who we are. We are children of the light. We are children of the day. Meaning we are to walk through this life with eyes wide open. We see the reality of what is happening. We know of what is yet to come in the glorious return of Christ. We are mindful of what God has revealed about the future. So again, God is not slow. He knows what He is doing. He has a plan, a plan to uncover a plan to expose, a plan to ultimately judge the works of darkness, all that has remained covered and hidden in darkness, all the things that people thought they got away with. It turns out they didn't get away with anything. Peter says at the end of verse 3, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed will be exposed. Now, perhaps your translation says burned up. I think exposed is a better way to translate this Greek word that appears in the earliest manuscripts as exposed or uncovered or found out by God. So the point is this. There is nothing hidden from God. When all is said and done, when judgment comes, when the day of the Lord arrives, there will be nothing hidden from God. No work, no thought, no heart, no motive. Those who refuse to come to Christ, those who refuse to find healing and forgiveness in Him, they will be laid bare before the holiness of God, before the righteousness of God. All will be uncovered before Him. Now, again, I know I've been quote heavy this morning, but allow me just one more and then we'll close. Um, Paul Gardner, I think, summarizes this verse well when he says it this way. God is at work in this world. He created it and will bring it to an end. It has not simply come into being by chance, nor will it simply disappear by chance. Peter urges us to remember God's activity. He is in sovereign control of all that goes on and will in his own time cause the world to come to an end and create a new heaven and a new earth for forgiven sinners to enjoy. Two questions and and we're done. Question number one, are you one of those forgiven sinners? The one that Paul Gardner just referenced, are you a forgiven sinner? I know you are a sinner. I do. Because we all are sinners. Brothers and sisters, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
We have. We are all sinners. Are you a forgiven sinner? Have your sins been cleansed by the blood of Christ and washed? Have you been made righteous in Christ because of His righteousness that is given to you? Again, if you have never done this, today is a day of grace. Today is a day of patience. Jesus is living water for your thirsty soul. Jesus is the treasure that we've been singing about that is worth you giving up everything to get. Repentance is the sweetest deal you will ever find. You give up shame and misery and the shackles of darkness to find a life and joy in Christ. It is the sweetest deal you will ever find. Come to Christ today. So are you one of those forgiven sinners who will enjoy the new heavens and the new earth? And then question number two is this. If you are, who are you praying for? Who do you know who needs Christ? Again, it is a day of patience. It is a day of of grace. Who will you pray for? Who will you gently share and proclaim the goodness of Jesus to? For us, on this side of eternity, time is ticking away. It is. it is, It is ticking away. But, going back to how we started, we can rest secure in the timeless transcendence of God. We can rest secure in the goodness, in the patience, in the sovereignty of God. Remember how Peter began. Beloved, do not overlook this one fact, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. God is not slow. God is patient. And the day of the Lord will come. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we are so humbled by this truth as we consider your glory, your majesty, your greatness, your eternality. God, forgive us for those times when we accuse you of being slow, when we think that you are negligent and distracted and inattentive. God, forgive us for thoughts like that. Help us to be so mindful of what Peter has written here, that you are not slow, you are patient. Your perspective on time is so glorious, we can, we can scarcely imagine what, what things look like from, from your perspective. Lord, help us to be faithful to you. Help us to be faithful to the testimony of Christ. Help us to be faithful to proclaim the riches and the glories of the gospel that others may hear and believe and know the life and the joy that is found in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that even now you would be putting people and names on our hearts, that we would be praying for them, that we would be so intentional about being ambassadors for Christ, to share with them who you are. Lord, do this for your glory, do it for our joy and for our good. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.